0: Kia ora koutou. Uh, nga mihi mahana, kia koutou uh, It's lovely to see you all in this, our last crisis of the series. We've been lurching from crisis to crisis, and I'm, I believe this is the last one. Uh, we're looking at what impact COVID has had on education and children, and I'm sure whatever context we're in, this is a question that we're all deeply invested in whether, uh, as people involved in education, as parents, as uncles, as aunties, as grandparents, we're really invested in what's happening with our kids. And we're delighted to have uh, Dr. Bronwyn Wood uh, from Victoria University of Wellington here to lead us through this material. Bronwyn has extraordinary wide, deep, long experience engaging with young people uh, as a teacher, uh, as someone involved in a range of uh, voluntary and charitable organisations, and most recently as a lecturer, senior lecturer in, at Te Haringa Waka in the School of Education. She has helped write textbooks, she's helped develop Curriculum. She has uh, a range of involvements uh, in education, working at special advisory groups in social science. So she knows her stuff. And as a colleague at Victoria, I know that it's uh, part of uh, Bronwyn's uh, reputation is as a, a tremendously committed, engaging, popular teacher, someone who's kind of a fearless, provocative, independent thinker, and also an outstanding researcher. She has won awards from the Royal Society of New Zealand and is an early career researcher at Victoria for her exceptional work. And in all of that work, especially she has a particular interest, um, one of her areas of expertise is in the development of belonging and citizenship amongst young people, and some of those awards are connected to that work. But in all of that work, Bronwyn's really committed to hearing uh, youth voices and to empowerment, and she's uh, always maintains that commitment to being theoretically grounded and smart, but also basing what she has to say enriched data from the voices of the people that she's studying. So Bronwyn, we're really excited to hear from you. Uh, Bronwyn, I'm sure all of these things that I've been uh, puffing her up about, you will uh, witness firsthand. She is uh, going to speak for about an hour with some time for interaction and then there'll be time for questions at the end. So let's welcome Bronwyn.
1: Thank you, Jeff. That was a rather overwhelming introduction. Very, very kind. So, Kyoto, and um, it is a pleasure to join you um, with this st- big lineup of people. I'm the last to arrive here at St. Michael's Autumn Faith Crisis and Freedom Series. I wondered, is there anyone here who's made every single session? <laughs> Just a few. Well done, hanging in there. Um, as you know, the last few years have been pretty rocky. Um, in terms of COVID impacting almost every population group in the world. And the pandemic has revealed um, many fault lines in social systems, in in our institutional resilience and service delivery. In addition, the experience has been far from equal, with groups already marginalised economically and socially bearing the brunt of the fallout every time. And as some colleagues in Australia have said, the young and the elderly suffer the most in any tear in the social fabric. So tonight I'm going to focus on the young and ask the question, what impact has COVID had on education and children? It's a pretty big question to answer in 45 minutes, and I caution you from the start to hold on to your seats because it's going to be a pretty bumpy ride. So I've structured the talk into two parts, and I invite a lot of interaction because that's how I teach a lot at university. So we'll be pausing to take some of your feedback as well. Um, And we're going to start off the first half by looking at the impact of COVID internationally and then turn our focus to New Zealand. And then in the second part, I'm going to step back and take a much longer view on education, where we've been and where we're heading in um, probably the last two decades um, as we head up to um, COVID. Okay, so first question, um, we'll deal with the first part first. What impact has COVID had on youth around the world? So education has been closely caught up with the experience of the pandemic since the start in um, 2020. At the beginning of 2020, I was lecturing in trimester one, and we heard rumours of COVID um, getting closer and closer from places like Italy and China. And until finally, in March 23rd, New Zealand was locked down, like many other countries around the world. In the last couple of days before that, I distinctly remember a group of United States students, exchange students, that had joined us, which was very common in those days. Um, And they had approached me after class in huge disarray about whether to go back to the US or whether to just stick it out in New Zealand because they were here for six months. Um, And finally, they were told by the US Embassy to catch the last flight out of New Zealand before the borders closed. So we gave big hugs and said, we'll see you in three or four weeks. Um, And here we are, two and a half years later, still unable for those students to enter New Zealand. So, little did we know um, that that would be the case, and it's been an unfolding kind of story, as you know. The United Nations says that the COVID pandemic has created the largest disruption of education systems in history, affecting nearly 1.6 billion learners in more than 190 countries in all continents. The closures of schools and other learning spaces have impacted 94% of the world's student population and up to 99% in lower middle income countries. At the peak of the pandemic, 1.6 billion students were out of school. While more than 90% of countries adopted some form of digital learning or used, um, actually the most common one used was radio, believe it or not, around the world, um, TV as well, that this only reached about 69% of school children globally with um, the most common form of communication being TV, not the internet. This meant that 31% of school children worldwide never had any form of learning throughout the COVID pandemic. So a UNICEF report um, has found, um, a UNICEF report was put out um, in 2021 in September and estimated that children had lost 1.8 trillion hours in person learning since the outset of COVID and subsequent lockdowns. Prior to COVID already about 250 million children a year were out of school and many unlikely now to return. There were huge regional differences around the world. Globally, 131 million students in 11 countries missed out on at least three quarters of their education instruction in the 18 months between March 2020 to September 21. Of these countries, Mexico, Bangladesh, the Philippines, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, children missed out entirely on schooling for 18 months. Schools were completely locked down. While in places like Myanmar and Iraq, Mexico and Jordan, children missed out on about 75% of schooling. So the UNICEF impact on learning states that it has been incredibly profound and there is no way to deny that children have paid a pretty high price. There are already detectable losses in learning outcomes across every age of children, with significant disparities emerging between children of low and high income families. McKinsey & Co in 2022 estimated that on average students globally are about eight months behind where they would be absent from the pandemic but the impact varies with some countries as little four months behind, while others are more like 15 to 18 months behind. Inequalities have also grown within school systems. For example, black children within the US have fallen much further behind in writing and reading than white children. An Australian study found that 46% of children in Australia had adverse effects on their educational outcomes, including nutrition, physical movement, social and emotional well-being, as a result of being physically disconnected from school. Beyond learning, the pandemic has had a broader social and emotional impact on students globally with rising mental health concerns, reports of violence against children, rising obesity, increases in teenage pregnancy and rising levels of chronic absenteeism and dropouts. The UNICEF report estimates that Um, poor households have soared by millions due to COVID, with an additional six to seven million children under five who may have suffered from malnutrition in 2020 alone. Another 80 million children under one are likely to have missed out on receiving life-giving vaccines, and COVID has reversed decades of progress in the fight against HIV. On the back of these rather grim findings, UNICEF in 2021 took a global stance on the ongoing closures of schools to state that no effort should be spared to reopen schools and every child should be given the opportunity to go back to school. So we'll move now to New Zealand and what we have seen here. While we don't yet know the full impact of COVID on New Zealand and school children, we can start to form a picture from a few reports that have been published. In particular, this report here um, done by ERO at the end of 2021 um, on the impact of COVID-19 on schools is particularly useful. It surveyed more than 10,000 students and 694 teachers during the pandemic and then during the lockdown and then after, alongside um, more than 1,700 principals The report points out some concerning patterns, and these are most marked for low-decile schools, for students from Auckland, who also had the extended five-month lockdown last year, and for senior secondary students whose loss of learning was most acutely felt more than primary school. So the evidence is quite clear that home learning was not as effective as school. 59% of schools reported concerns about students' progress and achievement And this was much higher for low-decile schools, where there was concerns up to 80% of students falling behind. Um, The subjects of highest concern were writing. It wasn't equal across the board. With reading and mathematics largely having maintained some um, momentum, um, writing was the thing that really has fallen out, and we have noticed that at university too. NCA students expressed the most concern about lost learning and nearly a third thought they were not up to date with their learning since they returned to school. While we don't yet have data on literacy and numeracy post COVID, um, particularly due to the suspension of many of their normal assessments, the performance of both primary and secondary students has been declining in most reliable measures of reading achievement, especially since 2009. In recent years, not only has Aotearoa New Zealand's reading achievement declined faster than comparable countries, but the proportion of students achieving at the highest levels in reading has also decreased. So it's perhaps no coincidence that some of this data has now started to emerge more forcefully since COVID with groups like the New Zealand primary principals um, calling out the lack of support that they have had for teaching of numeracy in schools. And on March 25th this year, there was a big national announcement about the parlous state of literacy in New Zealand. Um, It concluded that there was deeply worrying levels of literacy decline in New Zealand, um, drawing on a a UNICEF report that stated that only 64.5% of 15-year-olds in New Zealand had basic proficiency in reading and maths. 65% of children in year eight, age 11 and 12 and 13, were also below the expected level of writing proficiency and 44 below the expected reading level in another 2019 report. Some early NCA data indicates declining rates of literacy and numeracy in 2022 for low decile schools particularly. It gets worse, (laughs) it's not a a particularly easy thing to report, is it? Um, So if we look at further lockdown exacerbated existing inequalities even further, so a particular group of students noted by principals and teachers um, basically had no engagement during the lockdowns. This was likely to relate to things like um, inequitable access to devices or or connectivity, not having a quiet space to study, parents doing their children's schoolwork for them, would that ever happen? Parents unable to provide their children with support for their schoolwork, um, not having the right equipment, and particularly subjects like art and music, not having the equipment at home had a big um, impact. Um, And at the extreme end of the spectrum, unsafe home situations. The impact was particularly strong on low-decile schools who have higher levels of Māori and Pacific students and on Auckland students who also had the highest levels of anxiety um, during and post-COVID as well. So the vast gap in the experience of 2020 lockdown was made very apparent to me when we exited out of lockdown and started mixing and mingling more and Um, I remember getting particularly mad at smug middle class people who talked about how wonderful lockdown was as they made sourdough and hung out with their teenagers who normally weren't around and talked about how they managed to find places each to work each day. Whereas my experience of my students was um, I would have students who had to go round to an auntie's house so that they could sit under the window, not even able to enter the house because of the lockdown, to use the wi- the Wi-Fi broadband to download my lectures, to go home and try and desperately catch up on them. So that was the experience of many of my students and it certainly wasn't equal at all. What has become more apparent since COVID is this truancy pandemic, which has now hit New Zealand, um, which has worsened considerably, but was already declining since about 2015. So in 2020, 20- 22, about 60,000 students are missing at least three days of school every fortnight. So that's nearly 40% of students not attending regularly, or about 330,000 students missing out of education very regularly right now in New Zealand. You might not notice it if you're sitting in high decile schools, but um, I have colleagues teaching at TITUC who have said they just have – some students never came back after the first lockdown and they have this slow attrition of um, students regularly. Um, These are some quotes from a recent 2022 article that interviewed um, young people who were talking about um, how they hadn't come back, and they talked about families struggling so the kids have to work, and then other families believing it really isn't safe still to go back to school, and this is more common than you might think. So leisure activities, we have already um, a declining rate of uh, movement of young people, Um, and we have on average um, 15-year-olds in New Zealand now spending about two hours, 43 minutes on the internet a day outside of school hours. And in 2021, there was A quarter of New Zealand students spent six and a half hours a day on screens outside of school, which basically is from about 3 o'clock till 9.30 at night every day. So teens on average were spending about 42 hours a week online, more than double what they had spent in 2012. Um, This is some of the heaviest internet use in the OECD, behind only Denmark, Sweden and Chile. Heavy social media use is also strongly correlated with an increase in depression and anxiety, and the more time young people spend online, the more likely it becomes they will see something they shouldn't have seen. Um, Sports has declined, and particularly um, as students age, at the age of about 12 to 14, um, young people are doing about 12 hours of sport a year, uh, a a week, whereas by 18 to 24, it's down to about five hours, and this is particularly marked drop-off for teenage girls Um, I talked to my colleague today in physical education at university and he said I was being a bit negative and there is some evidence that young people did grow in their independence during COVID and some young sporting people found some new freedoms outside of school that they weren't in the absence of being in school. So that was a a good thought. Probably the most grim statistic of all of these things is about children and young people's mental health and wellbeing. And as I've just finishing uh, finished teaching trimester one at university, the rising rates of anxiety and depression have been right in my face. We've encountered general low-level anxiety in probably about one in every three girls. Um, we've witnessed suicidal tendencies and expressions. We've had students admitted to psychiatric institutions and just very poor levels of resilience around um, pressure points in the, in the term To be clear, the growing mental health pandemic, as it's referred to by Sir Peter Gluckman and colleagues in their report in 2020 on mental health in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has been about a decade in the making. They said the past decade has seen a rapid and concerning rise in youth psychological distress and suicide rates. They describe COVID-19 as fuel to the fire that has poured psychological gasoline on an already vulnerable group. Even before the pandemic, a youth 19 survey of 7,000 young people found that about 30% of females and 17% of males experienced symptoms of depression. This was almost double the rate of 2012. And since the pandemic, more than 74% of young people agree that COVID-19 had an impact on their mental health. Um, There's been an increase in self-harm incidents, and youth line calls have increased by 50%. Um, with the strong confirmation of gender uh, bias towards girls in diagnosis of major depression over boys. Um, The Growing Up in New Zealand study found that children who were worried about money and family finances were also more likely to report anxiety. But interestingly, if you had three or more positive experiences during lockdown in your bubble, it reduced all of these um, anxiety and depression symptoms. and there was some evidence that being in a bigger bubble, if you had six or more people, um, it was also a point of resilience. So finally, on some more positive notes, cause there were a few, COVID has provided a time to reset some of where we were heading in education and an opportunity to innovate around many ways we were doing education. It gave us a chance to recognize just how much schools and teachers do for the community. And in true, um, Phil Fountain fashion. I'd just like to give a shout out to all teachers. Do we have any teachers here? <laughs> they, they deserve um, a bit of um, credit because it's been absolutely exhausting if you have been in a school the last two and a half years, as John will tell you. We all know stories about teachers that would drop off baking and um, worksheets, recipes, laptops and um, organising and inspiring kind of points of contact with their students. While the prevailing message about young people was often about, um, how they were the cause of, um, COVID spread and so on, we know that by far the most of them were very responsible and a recent study of some Auckland students found that they remained highly active online in terms of black lives matter, um, and other social issues during COVID. Um, and many students reported that their own mental health had actually strengthened as they faced new challenges. So it isn't all grim, and I wanted to stop and take a little moment here for you to talk to the person beside you and have a little thought or a comment about what you think about all that, because that's a pretty heavy amount of um, data to chuck on you, and it certainly was pretty heavy to research, Um, and I'm trying not to be too negative, but we do have um, a small crisis at our hands. What I'd like to do is for you to just have a quick chat with the person beside you, we call it think, pair share in education. Um, and then have a chance to um, feedback some questions or some of your comments of your experiences, maybe to temper a little bit of what I've said, um, and just get the interaction going a little bit. So I'll give you a few minutes. Okay. Okay, let's have a little bit of feedback on some of your thoughts. And um, jeff has got a roaming mic so that the people online can hear. Um, there's a couple of questions online we'll um, deal with as well. So, anyone got a burning query comment question to at, at this stage to ask? There will be time for more questions, but I just thought I'd pause in the middle. Um, I'm going to deal with a little bit of that in the second half, but I can answer broadly. um, A lot of the data about New Zealand's decline in literacy and numeracy has been from some of the big OECD tests, and there's quite a lot of critique about them but it's all confirmed by our internal data. So the NIMP, which is the national monitoring data within New Zealand, and things like PEARLS, which is our literacy um, long-term data, all confirms the other ones. And basically there's been a decline since about 2009 that is steady and ongoing. Um, I have some other reasons for it that I'll get to in the second half.
0: Yeah and so boys, and Yeah. Of the certain mm-hmm. and the decisions this time mm.
1: In short, I would say no. I don't see that desire to holistically go back and actually reanalyse a lot of stuff, but we were already in a pretty poor state in terms of some our declining rates, and so COVID's just pushed that further and faster um, in many ways. Yeah, I don't know if that quite answered. Okay, we'll just take one more and then any from online, and then we'll go on with the second half. Um, my mum works with students learning disability mm. and, um, and with learning disabilities yeah. that, that makes it really difficult to teach
0: students who have kind of all the facial um, yeah. well more
1: Yeah. Well um I certainly know from knowing Kate Mackenzie bridal and Lucy that masks have created a large barrier for interaction for many students and in particular those special needs or deafness and I think they inhibit um, just the human interaction in many ways. I know there are reasons that we've been wearing them and um, luckily at university we have been allowed to take them off and I've got a deaf student in my class so I had to take mine off and we're about as far as from me to Tim in almost all our lecture theatres, so we have been allowed to, um, but schools have been a bit harder. So the, I don't know of any research being done on that, but it has been noted as a concern. Yeah, definitely. Any questions online, Tim? And then we'll move on. Oh yeah, so a question was whether uh, some of the developed countries might have done better than others. Um, the answer is I don't, I don't have enough uh, knowledge about that in particular, what I do know is the countries that just shut down schools completely without any option to go online have been the most poorly impacted. And we are talking about a generation of impact um, because those kids will never meet their literacy and numeracy rates. They probably were struggling to anyway in places like Bangladesh and India anyway. So yeah, there's, there's an, a, a kind of an avalanche of issues emerging out of that. Yeah. Keep your questions coming, we're going to move on a little bit and have a look at this idea of a longer view in education. And it's no doubt that COVID has challenged and exposed many serious vulnerabilities in our social systems and services that we rely on. And these deep social, economical and political fractures were already sitting within our communities and education. So as I discuss with my policy students at university, schools are generally could be seen as a microcosm of society that mirrors the same inequalities of social class, race and gender, and while we hope and absolutely celebrate every difference that schools and teachers can make, we also recognise that schools cannot mend all of social dysfunctions of society which enter the door with a child. So in the second half I want to take a longer view about where education is at and consider how we got here and what implications it may have for us. So if we look at this idea of deep educational divides that sit within our country and our education system, we need to return with a long view back to our colonial past and the deep imbalances rendered by the process of colonisation on New Zealand. While I don't have space to dwell on it here, early schools within New Zealand marginalised and excluded Māori knowledge, as exemplified by the 1967 Native School Act that banned Te Rau Māori in New Zealand classrooms, but many of these long inequalities last through till today. New Zealand schooling was founded on a belief of universal access through the welfare state, as Peter Fraser, the Minister of Education in 1939, famously stated that all citizens, regardless of their ability or wealth, had the right to free education. However, the changes brought about by the fourth Labour government under David Lange in 1989, under the umbrella of what we call Tomorrow's Schools, ushered in an education system built on the foundations of self-managing institutions, competition and choice. So this system is characterised by what John Codd, an education researcher, calls a strange mix of devolution and control, or the practice of steering from a distance, where schools are measured and held accountable through things such as public reporting of league tables and rankings, better public service targets, which have since been removed, Um, through the market conditions of schools which encourage competition um, and through the politics of choice. This illusion of choice offers choice to actually some groups but not others and inevitably it is the middle class and the wealthy who have a choice over their education and schooling. Our NCA system, which as an aside we are the only country in the world to persist with this approach to assessment at the senior end of schooling characterises this neoliberal approach to education with flexibility and choice at its core. This enables students to select courses from a suite of hundreds of achievement standards, the choice of which are largely governed around student interest. While this has great potential to meet the needs of many students, it can also lead to the avoidance of anything that might be difficult or result in failure. So this enables high pass rates which are celebrated by schools and parents and students alike but often can lead to weak pathways for the future for students into the workforce or tertiary education. And indeed it leads to some of the inequalities that we are now seeing in education itself in New Zealand. So international data confirms that New Zealand has one of the greatest gaps between those who do well at school and those who don't. The 2018 PISA data confirmed this in both reading and science, where New Zealand had some of the largest variation in achievement compared to other countries. So these these gaps sit both between our schools and within our schools through our systems of streaming. So the gap has remained between the top 10% and the bottom 10% in New Zealand persistently since the first PISA trials um, in 2000. So ironically there has been a small decrease in this gap, but that is only because the advantaged students at the top end are now dropping in their performance of reading. And the students at the bottom are maintaining the same level, so the gap appears smaller. So, when COVID steps into these gaps, we find a rapid decline of those who were already most weakly served by our education system. So, just as by way of illustration, um, there was a newspaper article um, June the 12th, just this past weekend, that Peter and Kate Mackenzie bridal alerted me too. And some of you you would have seen it. It was about students in South Auckland described, describing a ticking time bomb of inequalities created both by the pandemic, the cost of living. And this has led to large numbers of students leaving school without qualifications and joining the workforce more than their peers in other areas. So this article draws on Auckland Council data that describes how many students never returned to school after the initial lockdown. They were forced to work and help their parents and now are stuck in low-paid, unskilled labor. So between um, 2018 and 2020, there was a noticeable decline of students who were getting UE, university entrance, in South Auckland. So across all of Auckland about there was a decline of about three point two percent but in suburbs of South Auckland it was up to seventeen point two percent of students who now no longer in those two years got um, UE the research also showed that less than twenty five percent of students in South Auckland now get UE at all whereas the average across Auckland is fifty percent so this is illustrating how COVID has pushed a region of New Zealand into much deeper inequalities in education um, than before. A second trend I want to take a longer look at in education to explain where we are today is the rise of digital technology that now pervades our classroom and our approaches to learning. You'll hardly be surprised to know that the largest companies of the world are now deeply involved in our education and in our classrooms. This graph here, which I find fascinating, showed an increase in the share stocks. At the very top, it's Apple, followed by Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Google. And this was occurring, this rise in their um, shares was occurring during the initial pandemic while other aspects of the economy were on decline or hold. These groups were just marching away. The rise of Zoom is another one that you would know as an example of pervasive presence of digital technology, which has been a hallmark of this pandemic. Um, And many of these companies now hold greater economic productivity than countries themselves. They are larger in economic power than a country. Do you recognise any of these companies that now sit in our classroom? Does anyone know what the one on the far right is, a small little black box? Has anyone seen that one? Alexa. So what's Alexa, anyone tell me? So it's Amazon's equivalent of Siri, which is um, AI, artificial intelligence, answering. So. New Zealand schools, once again, have um, been very keen on embracing technology, and you can walk into primary schools and Alexa's in the corner, and the kids can go up and say, Alexa, what's 3 plus 8? And the initial research has um, shown that uh, they they have downloaded all of the conversations Alexa had with students um, during the day, and one of the most notable is children that come in at lunchtime and say, I've got no friends, Alexa, can I talk to you? So, yeah. Um, so you would know that the growth of these um, is now in the, in the billion dollar project of these edgy tech kind of companies that have moved into our classrooms um, on speed during the pandemic, but were already arguably there. So I always just find it quite important to explain, you'll find it hard to read this slide about why digital technology just gained so much access to our classrooms in the past two decades. And this rests upon two parallel global discourses that have been around since about the year 2000. So the first of these is what we call the knowledge economy, which was suggested by the OECD in 1996 and adopted widely around the world as the latest and greatest approach to economic growth. So the country they would um, roll out, as an example, was Singapore, which had no natural resources but very high levels of human capital. And the argument went that if we copy Singapore, we will create workers for the global economy that are flexible and adaptable um, in their in their knowledge and in their skills. And very ironically, the knowledge economy approach focused more on skills and competencies than actual knowledge. Around the same time, at the turn of the millennium, um, there was another discourse of significant social change associated with the arrival of so-called digital natives who were supposedly wired for digital technology, unlike digital immigrants, who are old people, who were not. Um, Digital natives, it was argued, are a whole new beast. They have access to all the information in the world and therefore they don't need teachers. They only need facilitators or guides on the side. And they had endless agency and were able to manage their own learning and curriculum needs. While these ideas have been almost completely discounted by research, it nonetheless has caught the imaginations of schools and education, and been employed and used to a great extent by digital companies to justify their existence in our classrooms. So if you're sitting in a New Zealand school right now, you would be well familiar with these artefacts of the 21st century learner which is closely associated with a change in pedagogy, a change in building modern learning environments, and a higher prioritisation on student-led learning. So um, these have changed the way that teaching has happened, and the biggest impact it has is dislodged the role of the teacher, who now remains Um, at the side of teaching instead of at the centre of teaching, and this has been, in my mind, one of the greatest reasons for the inequalities growing within uh, schools. You won't be able to read this one, (laughs) it's a bit small, but I'll I'll just help you a little bit there. So I don't have time to go into all the evidence. In my lecture I'd normally go through every single one of those, inquiry learning, student-led learning, and critique um, the evidence for whether that exists or not. but I'll just talk about the overstated claims for digital technology in education. So, back in 2014, the OECD released a report looking at digital technology around the world, and they found that high achieving school systems such as South Korea, um, China, Japan, had very low levels of digital um, technology adopted into their schools. And Singapore, once again, had medium levels of digital skills which included only about one to two hours a week on digital devices at that time. And these schools were performing far better than schools that had a higher, countries which had adopted digital technology uncritically. The New Zealand data is even more sobering, and this report, I think, has been a bit buried. I've put the link at the bottom there. But it came out on the back of the PISA report, and very devastatingly, it found that digital devices have the potential to enhance learning, but there are few situations where this happens currently, and most learning appears to be hindered. What they found is that most students that had access to devices, um, it's a little bit hard to read bone writing here, they were regularly as- wait, wait. So the students that were using digital devices the most um, were associated negatively with their PISA scores. So even after controlling for school factors, this was particularly the case for students that use tablets and interactive whiteboards. So we have this evidence and yet um, schools are pushing further and further and further into digital technology. So, I'm nearly there. Just to exemplify the logic of neoliberalism and the presence of digital technologies, I want to refer to something our university calls dual delivery which currently is being used. So what this does is it requires me as a lecturer to video every lecture so it is available to all students. So this has made some sense in the past trimester where almost every student I taught um, had COVID. However, the logic of our university, I am guessing, is that this will now continue into the future where students will now be able to choose between two apparently equal choices, one studying on campus and one watching the video later or at the time um, online. The trouble with this is that these choices are not equal and no one is pointing out the educational quality inequalities that sit between those two choices. So I'll just give an example. I had 130 students this year in Stage 2. About 30 of them attended the lecture regularly and went to the campus tutorials on, on campus every week. All of the others were online or absent. About a third would attend um, the lecture live and about a third were completely and utterly absent and obviously watched the lecture later, if at all. So the group that was on campus got this supreme um, elite education. I knew everyone by name. Um, We had highly interactive sessions um, where we could um, share food, interact, get to know each other. The group online, I wouldn't know if I bumped into them on the street, that they were my students, because they blanked all their screens. They were not named, I did not know them. And then the final third of a group completely absent um, at this stage. The final test grades show a very, very clear difference with those that were on campus, averaging about A minus and those that were um, off-campus in the low Bs, the Cs, or otherwise completely failing. So there's a very clear difference going on in terms of quality of relationships and quality of education. Um, That is, it is unlikely that, yet, it is unlikely that our university will insist on campus-only courses ever again. Or, in all likelihood, the campus experience may become the experience for maybe the expensive form of education for the elite, while online becomes the norm for the rest. So, just to wrap it up, I want to draw together a few threads for consideration and argue for an education system that is not a transaction but is relational and deeply committed to the equity of all. These ideas are deeply shaped by my faith and by liberation theology educational theorist, Paulo Freire, who argued for a problem-posing education that is created in collaboration with students in ways that are dialogical. In other words, there is interaction going on where conversation and questioning is at the heart of learning. It is not a didactic delivery, one way recorded um, to be watched later, but an engagement and interaction of authentic thinking Um, that happens through communication. I would argue that the current transactional and digitally driven approaches to education undermine the potential for problem-posing education that occur best in face-to-face and embodied ways. For sure, digital technology can provide some of this through greater flexibility of delivery and communication, but it simply can never fulfil the role of an effective teacher who is in relationship with their students who knows them by name and is who is in dialogue with them. Such approach is characterised by what I call a theology of encounter and interaction in which every human is treated with dignity and respect and a spirit of manaakitanga or welcome to the community of learners that is formed in the process. So in closing, I want to rather bravely perhaps suggest some possible responses to this crisis that is present to us in education right now but even more so on the back of two and a half years of a global pandemic. Um, It is, if we stop and focus on children, we need to recognize that for a child who is six, half of their life has been impacted by COVID by now, if we use a rough idea of three years. For a student who is 18, COVID has impacted one sixth of their lives. For someone like me around 50, COVID is close to one sixteenth of my life and arguably less, of a huge um, impact on me. So if we recognize that the pandemic has the greatest fallout for the young and for the elderly, what can we as middle people do, who arguably have been the least effective? And in the proverb I, su- I share most with my students in class, to those who much, is- much is given, much will be required. So here's a few suggestions that I would like to suggest we could start to throw around as a community of people who are committed to, um, to serving our young people. Firstly, where possible to insist on embodied meetings and interaction, even when it requires more effort, as we know this increases community and reduces isolation. I think if we recognize that we have a pandemic of disconnection and alienation and anomie, as we call it in sociology, we need to do everything we can to meet where possible. I know this goes against current trends to the default online meeting if they're requested or proven easy, but we owe it to children and young people to reduce social isolation and maintain real, embodied relationships. In fact, we need to model these. Number two, it's not that digital technology doesn't have some uses. We all know it's highly useful. And how else could my mum, Beulah, in Auckland be watching me right now? Hi, Mum. But we need to constantly call out what digital technology cannot do and indeed what damage it can create to the young especially on social media if digital companies are more powerful economically than many countries at a global level we need to hold them to account and at times resist their offerings number three we need to reclaim spaces of deep relationship and deep critical knowledge and by this i mean the type of embodied relationships and communities that young people today are craving for but struggling to find and resorting to apps as a means to find relationships through things like Tinder but missing out on so much about what it means to belong and to be loved by a community. Criticality also isn't learned by watching a lecture on 2.5 speed and skipping the parts of the discussion We need to insist on educational practices that allow interaction and deeper understandings of our complex world, rather than reduce education to a transaction. I just want to close with a quote from the former Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, who said that COVID-19 should be the reason to do more for children, New Zealand now has an opportunity to apply the lessons learned over the past year to redesign our system to tackle the big issues facing children and young people, both in times of crisis and not. Thank you very much. Very good questions, Jeff. So the first question is, is there space today to engage in that type of deep relationship and that type of problem posing education where we're interactive and discuss things? Um, yes, there still is that moment that we can carve out. And in fact, um, Jeff, you have found it in your courses. I can find it in my courses. But the trouble is so many students are now missing out on that, certainly at university, by not being present. And for whatever reason, I cannot get to that same level of relationship and interaction online with students with their blanked screens and without an embodied presence. I just can't get there. So I think seize the the physical space, the physical meeting, the face-to-face meeting, and within our primary schools and secondary schools, this is still happening, largely because they're open and students need to be there, but in smaller numbers for other reasons, than ever. The other question about whether there's some tension about the need for the teacher to be um, not just a guide on the side but actually leading the classroom as opposed to um, uh, does that stand in conflict with the idea of a more relational, inclusive classroom. So this is a big issue and what we need is a teacher that actually is guiding that ability to do that because it doesn't... So that highly interactive, inclusive classroom doesn't happen by standing to the side. So actually naming that space as an interactive and inclusive space, but actually guiding the learning because students come to learn. They don't come knowing everything. Why else would they come to school? They don't know what they don't know. So they need to be led and pushed and critiqued and challenged and advanced by a teacher, but at the same time it can be done in highly inclusive and highly relational ways. hope that's not a cop-out.
0: So the questions. First um,
1: Do you have any suggestions for trustees who are Yep. So, I do some quite subversive work with schools around the country about people that contact me trying to hold a line on, on some of these falling standards and often not getting a lot of traction. And what I'd say is hold the line. And I think by that I mean don't just flake to the latest um, trend, but actually know deeply what matters. And that's where it takes an ability to, to know what good education is and to keep fighting for it. Because there's a lot of woolly ideas out there that really lack um, strong evidence and research. And so it's okay to say, actually, we don't need a whole lot more digital stuff. We can reduce that in our school. Um, and you'll largely get the middle class, particularly with you, completely on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks, sir.
0: Kind of, what, what, like what mm. should we do socially we should put the most money in to the mm. um, and price, would expect, say 10 years
1: Yep, so I've got some thoughts on that. Um, So I think it has taken about 15 years of decline to get to where we are now. It'll probably take 15 to get back, and that's really sobering. Um, And I don't know that people have enough drive to get there at this stage, but the best thing that we could ever do is equip our teachers more. So what has happened in the last 15 years with that slight dislodging of the teacher in the classroom and their role, they haven't been given professional development, so we've got this enormous gaping um, hole of teachers who hardly know what their subject areas are. They were given a lot of waffly, vague stuff, Um, but if you were, say, a science teacher or a social studies teacher, you haven't had professional development for 15 years almost. Would I be right, John? I think. And so there's this massive gap of teacher support and professional development that hasn't been there. That would be where I'd put my money. The biggest thing, if we could equip our teachers, they would be up for the game. But in the absence of that, there's these vague uh, 350 million, thrown at, kahu-i-ako communities of learning with very vague outputs and very vague um, differences made with the type of thing they're working on. So schools have been encouraged to focus on low-hanging fruit that they might be able to get a few quick wins on, but the deep stuff, which requires a lot of teaching, is where we need to throw a lot of time and energy through good teachers at. Yeah, so a few things there, but I'll answer that last one. So yes, definitely we have a lot to learn from indigenous knowledges. What I think we need to understand is that um, we there is a wealth of knowledge out there that has been largely excluded, that um, because of the dominant ways that Western institutions have formed their bodies of knowledge there are whole other ways of understanding that have been excluded. And particularly for us in New Zealand, um, a te ao Māori approach to learning about the world um, is deeply beneficial for our students um, in, in understanding the world as a much more deeply connected place through both social, spiritual and environmental kind of way, lenses. So yes, there's an awful lot to be learned and I would encourage that to be learned alongside what we already know in our schools, rather than seeing them as two competing models, but um, to learn what we can from, from all types of knowledges. Interestingly, it was the Helen Clark government back in the 90s that dislodged our apprenticeship schemes. It was quite an interesting thing to do, I think from memory about uh, 96 or so. Um, And they took out what were very solid apprenticeship schemes in New Zealand where you would join as a plumber or an electrician um, out on the trades um, from leaving school. What it took was about 15 years before we realised that we would greatly destabilise the trades and then we had a a really big crisis on our hands because what they put in place through ITOs um, weren't able to attract students the same way or get them on board in quite the same ways. So um, New Zealand has been on the back foot compared to countries like Germany which have had very, very strong apprenticeship schemes from way back um, and in many ways Uh, we then have this kind of crisis of students not entering the trades that would be very well placed there. So this is obviously the last couple of years, fees free, if you were doing anything um, to do with the trades, you now get one and even two years free. So the government's trying desperately to get students to move that way, um, but we have had the tendency to inflate credentialisation or qualifications of most of our courses um, during that time as well. Answers it. I'm mm. not allowed to add it, but I was very interested in the comments
0: around device use. What would your advice be for men as a parent managing device use
1: in the world and education? Yeah. Well, NetSafe and others um, really encourage parents to be quite firm. And the research suggests that um, putting in place boundaries is the right thing to do, so to limit time, to limit occasions, to limit spaces where that happens. And um, from what I know of the research, that appears to be one of the clearest things you can do. Make a time in a space and then call it quits, and that's quite known. The The young people that have unlimited time are the ones which tend to get far more into problematic places on the internet and also to have those really highly addictive kind of tendencies of not being able to ever get off, yeah. So go hard. Uh, just wondering about the interrelationship between the law literacy, the children, mm. advocacy, et cetera, mm. and mental health. Mm. So, and I guess you have to put on technology yeah. Mm. So, what I'm wondering is that if, you, like if you're more anxious, you want mm. to learn some more. Yeah. But then, if you don't get it out, and you're not in having an experience of your person, and mm. you understand it. You see that you can't remember what was like six or ten years, then you could become more anxious. So, yeah. you see what I mean? There's now, a cycle, yeah. yeah Yeah. So I don't have particular knowledge of the link between lower achievement and um, technology use but what I think that digital report was saying is that high technology use wasn't resulting in high digital use wasn't resulting in higher levels of achievement either. So what we could assume is the, perhaps we could assume the opposite. Um, that high technology use is resulting in lower standards. I don't have it quite at my fingertips. But I think the clearer message there is that um, the ability to learn deeply requires us not to be so distracted, and so the distraction capability, which has happened both through the big open plan classrooms, greatly increased the ability to be distracted, and also the constant ping of the notifications, which um, I've just marked a whole thesis on digital distraction in the classroom through smartphones, and um, the, the researcher observed probably as many as 15 times on average per student where they would quickly check their phone in the course of the lesson to quickly check the latest notification or if it was in their pocket, have a quick check like that. And the argument went that they weren't being severely distracted, but at no time could they enter deep learning because it was that superficial just snatch-grab, snatch-grab, I'll just get to the next bit, but never able to completely go into a deeper conversation where you find flow or interaction. So that's probably, the distraction is probably one of the greatest concerns arising now in the classroom. The, The thesis ironically argued that teachers need to understand this and just go with the flow and allow the distraction, but as the examiner, I wrote back and said, there is a time to actually remove devices and <laughs> allow people to actually just engage without the need for them to constantly ping. So yeah, if Matt Bartlett was here, he would say, turn off all your notifications on your front screen and get back your life. That's what he would say, <laughs> It's a good policy. <laughs> Mm. about how attached yeah. are to their advisors, yes, that it was almost impossible mm. to even of phones way, mm. that she felt to confront a student who was only using mm. phone, but, you know, in a critical, Yeah. Yes, so the thesis I just marked commented exactly on that, and this absolute anxiety that students felt once separated from their phones is quite real, and that fear of missing out, that something might happen that you're not immediately onto that everyone else is. Um, So that's quite genuine. And the thesis suggested, perhaps um, with some wisdom, saying that um, we can't get rid of it completely, but we can allow for moments when it's okay to check that in a lull, And then put them away while we're focusing and so that you acknowledge that pain of being apart from the phone and then put put a time where it can be checked that kind of thing so that was one solution they had yeah but it is quite real I mean the last 15 years of decline generally in education exacerbated in the last two. Yep. yeah well you're exactly right that um teachers are very burdened by this and in fact i was talking with a bunch of secondary teachers yesterday they are absolutely exhausted and can't explain it themselves why in june you're just absolutely exhausted and it's this they describe it as this weight of uncertainty that's been sitting over them, but also how they've had to step up, adapt new ways of teaching, um, flip, pivot you know, online at a, a day's notice kind of thing. So the weight is falling very heavily on them, but I, um, I feel quite sorry for them. There's a massive curriculum change afoot because of recognition of where we're at and the need to actually firm up a bit more knowledge, which that's where the direction of the new curriculum is going. Um, So teachers are very much, that's why I say above all else, they need to be given professional development time, space to actually get their heads around a lot of what's happening so they can then meet the needs of the students. And it will take a while. I think in general, um, the primary students will, will swing back. I think those most deeply impacted are probably at the senior end because of things like lost opportunities to get into university, or lost assessment, lost um, momentum. I think they're the ones at this stage I'm more worried about. Politically? Politically. Ah, oh, okay. Which party okay.
0: is moving
1: okay. education in the
0: right trajectory
1: for <laughs> the
0: next fifteen years? Okay. Okay.
1: okay. Um, the second question uh, is equally, Thank you, in true phantom style. Um, okay, so political choices for education. Well, it's, it's not looking good. Um, <laughs> you can get rid of ACT, because they're doing bonkers stuff on vouchers and a whole lot of privatization of our schooling. We don't need that. Um, Labor's got a few things right. I would say the direction of the new curriculum, which I'm closely involved with for Social Studies in History and onward. Is heading in the right direction it's just probably slightly confused at times but it's heading in the right direction Um, the NCA reviews which have been brought in by Labour as well have recognized that there's a very deep problem in NCA that I tried to it was probably my harshest critique I don't know if you picked that up but (laughs) that was like of all things in New Zealand this one is not working for us and um, so there is a sense of momentum there Internally, it's not working out quite as well as it should, as John and I know on the special um, groups that we're on. Um, I think, I don't really know where National's going, but bringing back more testing and more standards isn't gonna fix anything, we know that absolutely. That testing, you know, measuring the pig, weighing the pig doesn't increase its weight, no matter how many times you weigh it. Um, so that isn't going to go very far. Um, but I would like some deep commitment to professional development of teachers and I'm waiting for a political party to name that because that's my plank to vote on. So second one, why does embodiment matter? Well, I recognise there are times that it isn't, we aren't able to meet and right now the people at home with COVID and you know in different parts of the world, whatever, the digital technologies enable us to, to put a stop gap in that furthers communication and interaction of those, I would say, that largely know each other already. To develop new relationships completely um, in that space is much harder. It is possible, but much harder, and generally it's on the back of some type of commitment to each other that you would do that online and form that. Why embodiment works so much more in terms of our ability to relate as humans, I believe is deeply about affective stuff that we can't measure, the ability to read people far more deeply, to interact in a a much more bodily way. You can see the way you move, you know, all of that makes a difference into how you interact, how you see facial movements, how you um, can uh, get the, I don't know, tanga sense of being together that can be cultivated online but is far harder. And therefore, why not just go for the embodied face-to-face engagement whenever you can? Thank you, Jane. It's a pleasure. going